0: Turn in your Bible to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. The last time as we were working our way through the book of Revelation, we looked at verses 6 through 10 of this chapter, and we saw the marriage supper of the Lamb. Today we're going to see another meal, although this one is very different. And the main thing we'll see before we get to that meal is a description of the victorious Christ going forth in judgment and deliverance to advance his kingdom. If you look around and you ask yourself, what's going on in the world today? Is the kingdom of Christ growing or is it in defeat? Is Christ advancing his kingdom or are things just getting worse and worse? we might come up with different answers to that question. Well, the vision of Christ that we get in these verses this morning should go a long way toward helping us answer those questions. So follow along as I read, beginning in Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his, its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. We're going to look at this in two parts this morning. And the first part is where we're going to spend most of our time, the rider on the white horse. So we find this in verses 11 through 16. And what we see in these verses is an image of the victorious advance of the gospel throughout the world. Now, that might sound a little bit strange. Let me say it again. What we see in these verses is an image of the victorious advance of the gospel throughout the world. So hold that thought in your mind while we look at the details of John's description. The person that we're seeing is Jesus Christ. He's the rider on the white horse. And what does John say about him? Look at the description. Well, first of all, he's on a white horse. Why a white horse? Well, the white horse symbolizes victory. Back in Revelation 6 and verse 2, we saw the seven seals opened, and we saw a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Well, here the white horse again symbolizes victory. This one is going out to conquer. Jesus is riding to victory, In his incarnation, he rode a gentle, humble, humble donkey. But now he rides to war and to victory. He's called faithful and true. That's a description of Jesus, the faithful or righteous one, the way, the truth, and the life. Back in Revelation 3, verse 14, Jesus had sent the letter to the church in Laodicea, and it began this way. The words of the Amen the faithful and true witness. Jesus is the faithful and true witness. Then we're told that in righteousness he judges and makes war. So Jesus renders justice according to God's law. Now, for the Jews, what does that mean? It means the destruction of A.D. 70. For God's enemies in general, what does it mean? It means they're going to be subdued either by judgment or By submission to his word. Psalm 96 tells us that he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. There's that judging in righteousness and faithfulness. And Isaiah says that he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So he rules in righteousness, justice. Then John says in verse 12 that his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now we saw that before as well, back in Revelation 1. The vision of the Son of Man whose eyes are like a flame of fire. And if you remember, it tells us that he sees completely, right to the heart of things. He makes perfect judgment. Remember what Hebrews 4 says. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So how is he able to to make just and righteous judgments? Well, he sees right to the heart of the matter. We all like to think that we can hide. Kids, I'm sure, once or twice, you've tried to hide something from your parents. They may or may not have seen it. We all think that we can do things that God's not going to see, but Jesus sees it all, and he judges rightly, so justice will always be done. And on his head are many diadems. He's wearing crowns because he's already been victorious. Victory is nothing new for him. Now, from this point in the middle of verse 12, down through the end of verse 16, we have a chiasm. Remember, that's that Oreo structure, Oreo cookie structure that the Bible writers sometimes use, okay? Where you have something on the outside that kind of gets repeated, and then you've got the cream in the middle. That's that's in some way the focus of what's going on. Well, here you have three layers before you get to the cream, okay, in verses 12 through 16. I'm going to put it up on the screen just so that you can visualize it a little bit better here. The mirrored parts will kind of help us to understand. So the first thing we have in this section is we have a name written which no one knows but himself. Then we see that he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Then we see that his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven follow him on white horses. He has a sharp mouth sword to strike the nations and rule them. He treads the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. And he has a name written on his thigh king of kings and lord of lords okay so let's look at each part of this kind of in turn he has a name written that no one knows but himself but in these verses we actually learn what the name is he has a name that he is called and he has a name that is written and we learn what both of them are so what does it mean that no one knows it but himself well this is a a hebrewism it's a hebrew way of referring to Acknowledging something to be yours, you own it, and no one else can own it. So, no one else can know it. So, this name is owned by Jesus and no one else. No one else can know it or own it but him. If you look down at the mirrored part down here in verse 16, the written name is written on his thigh, and it's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we'll talk about that in a minute when we get there in the text, but no one else can own that name. Then verse 13 tells us that he wears a robe dipped in blood. And the question is, whose blood is it? Well, if you look at the mirrored part down here, you'll see that Jesus treads the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. When you're treading grapes in a winepress, the juice from the grapes will stain the bottom of your robe. Thus, a robe dipped in blood. Okay? I can remember being at some historical site, I don't remember for sure which one it was, maybe Williamsburg. And they were making mud bricks or something like that. And there was a mud pit and they'd added water and they were in there kind of stomping around and you know, softening up the mud. And they invited our boys to get in and do that too. So they took off their socks and shoes and they got in. Well, no socks, no shoes, but that doesn't mean your clothes aren't gonna get mud on them. Right? The same idea here, when you're treading out the grapes the juice or the blood of the grapes gets on your robe. And that's the imagery that's being used here. Jesus is treading the winepress of God's wrath against his enemies. So the blood on Jesus' robe is the blood of his enemies. Then we see that the name by which Jesus is called is the word of God. So the word of God is his name. This is the only place in Revelation that Jesus is called by this name. But it's not the only time that John calls Jesus this. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, he begins by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the Word. And in John 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That reminds us that Christ has come, not just for the purpose of judging his enemies, but also with the good news of the gospel. That's the word. The word does both. And this will be part of the advance of his kingdom. Not just putting down his enemies, but also winning by the proclamation of the word, the gospel, which is the proclamation about Jesus. Then we reach the center of the Oreo structure, verse 14. And I'm going to set this verse aside for a few minutes while we look at the rest of the section, and then we'll come back to it. Okay? So as we continue on down, in verse 15, the image of Jesus that we have is with a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. He uses it to strike the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. Well, first, remember that this is the mirror of this section here, where Jesus is called the Word of God. The sword in his mouth here is the Word of God. That's why it's coming from his mouth. It's communication from him. And we saw this imagery back in chapter 1, in the vision of the Son of Man, Revelation 1.16, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Where else in Scripture do we have that language? of a sharp two-edged sword. Well, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God is compared to a sharp sword that cuts right to the heart of the matter. It makes right judgments. And here in Revelation 19, Jesus, who is himself the word of God, has the sword of the word in his mouth. He's the one who judges rightly. He's the one who issues a word of judgment. He's the one who issues the word of the gospel. His word is powerful. So what does he do with the sword of his word? Well, our translation says that he strikes down the nations. And what you would think of naturally with that is probably part of the picture here. But I do want to mention that word down is not in the original. It's just that he strikes the nations. And strike can have different meanings. The first meaning is exactly what you would expect. Somebody doing with a sword, which is to strike somebody with the purpose of harming them or judging them. That would be God's judgment, bringing pain. The other meaning, though, is the way that the word is used in Acts 12, verse 7, when the angel shows up to rescue Peter from prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hand. So the use of the word here does not bring harm. Instead, it actually brings help or rescue startles someone into action and that may be why the sword in revelation 1 and the sword that we see here in revelation 19 is a two-edged sword it can have two very different effects the sword the word of god may have the effect of waking up the nations startling them into action rescuing them from the prison of sin and rebellion against god Then we see that Jesus rules the nations with a rod of iron. The language is drawn from Psalm 2. So this is still in the section here talking about this mouth sword, but it says that he rules with a rod of iron. And I think it's helpful for us to go back to Psalm 2 and see just what John means. And I'm I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. So follow along what he's saying in Psalm 2, because John's telling us that Psalm 2 is being fulfilled. All right. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the nations and powers of the earth oppose God and they oppose Jesus, the Messiah. And we've seen throughout the book of Revelation that this is exactly what the Jewish nation does, too. It's true of other nations as well. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this is similar to what we saw in Psalm 110 that we just sang. God laughs at their rebellion. Not because it's funny, but because it's pitiful. It's ridiculous. They don't stand a chance against him. So he will act in his righteous wrath, like we saw in Revelation 19. Jesus treads the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. And God says here in this psalm that his king is the true king. Jesus is, as Revelation 19 puts it, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The psalm goes on. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So that phrase today I have begotten you is referring to Jesus being enthroned as king. Like Peter says to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And God says to Christ, the nations will be your heritage. They're your possession. They're yours. The nations will belong to Christ. They will honor Christ as king. They will serve him. And if they don't, then he'll break them with a rod of iron. So John tells us in Revelation 19 that by the power of his word, Jesus will rule them with a rod of iron. It's the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Here's how the psalm finishes. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So how should the nations respond? How should the kings of the earth be wise? By submitting themselves to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. Serving the Lord with fear, rejoicing with trembling, kissing the Son, showing reverence and honor to him. And what John is telling us now, back in Revelation 19, is that this is now happening. The Son of God is riding out to victory, and the nations will either face his judgment or they will bow the knee to him. John says then, continuing on, that Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. Well, we've kind of already talked about that. As we saw, this is Jesus' righteous judgment on those who reject him, and that's why his robe is dipped in blood. Then verse 16 Says that Jesus has a name written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the written name that John told us about in verse 12, the name that no one else can own. And the thigh is where the sword usually rests. Okay, so if you picture somebody with a a sword strapped on, the thigh would be where that sword usually rests. These images all revolve around God's word. Remember, the sword is the word, it's coming from Jesus' mouth. And he's the one who's the king. These things kind of come together in Psalm 45, verses 3 and 4. Just listen as I read these two verses. This is speaking of the king. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously. That's exactly the picture that John is painting for us in Revelation 19. So the fact that his name is King of Kings, written on his thigh, That's associated with his sword, which is his word. So he rules absolutely and ultimately by his word. He speaks a word of judgment and the nations are judged. He issues a verdict against Israel for their unfaithfulness and judgment falls. Just like when God spoke at creation, Things came into existence. So when this one on the white horse, Jesus, speaks, things happen. His word is powerful. Now, I want to make a connection here to another passage of Scripture. And this is important. I don't want you to miss this. I want you to see it for yourself with your own eyes. So turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. We're going to look at verses 29 to 31. If you remember last fall... We studied Matthew 24 together, and we saw that this was Jesus' warning of judgment to Israel. Judgment was going to fall on Jerusalem, and it happened, just as Jesus said, in A.D. 70. Jesus said that the judgment would fall on this generation, the generation he was speaking to. And 40 years later, 40 being a biblical generation, the judgment fell. AD 70. But let's go back and look at one thing in particular here that Jesus said. In Matthew 24, Jesus is describing the judgment that's coming. He he goes on about the great suffering that will be in Jerusalem, the time of tribulation that will fall on the city and the people. And then he says this in verses 29 to 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The language of the world falling apart, the sun darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven, powers of the heavens shaken. What is all that talking about? It's not literal. Okay, Whenever you go back into the Old Testament and see that kind of language, the prophets are always, without exception, talking about earthly powers, like national governments being defeated. So when Jesus uses this language... He's not literally saying that the universe will fall apart. He's saying the whole order of things that this generation relies on, the Jewish state, the temple rituals, and all that goes with it, that's all going to come to a crashing end. And that happens just like Jesus prophesied in A.D. 70. Okay. Second reminder, when the verse says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Remember what we learned. The translators put the words out of order. They're trying to be helpful. They're trying to make sense of it. But in this case, they really obscured the meaning. They changed the meaning. What the text actually says is this. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. The sign doesn't appear in heaven. The Son of Man is in heaven. What appears is a sign that indicates that the Son of Man has taken his place in heaven on the throne, at the right hand of God the Father, just as was prophesied. And what is the sign? It's the destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 70. The judgment of Jerusalem, Jesus is saying, when that judgment falls... When you see Jerusalem destroyed, that's a sign to you that I am on my throne. You'll know I'm ruling and reigning because I'm the one who's sending that judgment. Now, I said I wanted to make a connection here that will help us understand Revelation 19. So, first of all, notice what Jesus says will happen. He says will happen immediately after the tribulation of those days well if the tribulation the time of difficulty in jerusalem and judea is that time leading up to ad 70 then the time that jesus is talking about the language of the stars falling the sun darkening happens immediately after in other words ad 70 but look what else happens at the same time verse 31 And along with the destruction of AD 70, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the gathering of the elect from all over the world begins at this point. This means that at this point, the word, the gospel, is no longer focused primarily on national Israel, but instead it goes out to the whole earth, the four corners of the earth. Remember, in Revelation 19, we're seeing Jesus as the Word, the Word of God, the victorious King, who has the sword, which is the Word of God, in his mouth because he's proclaiming his kingdom. And that announcement of his kingdom means Judgment for those who reject him and salvation for those who accept it. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The very word of God who goes forth in righteousness, judging and making war, advancing his kingdom. Now, how does he go about subduing the nations? How does he rule them with a rod of iron? How does he strike them? Is he striking them down as enemies? Is he striking them like the angel struck Peter to wake them up and bring them to respond to the message of deliverance? And the answer is yes, both. He rules in righteousness by judging those who reject him and he rules in righteousness by bringing the message of deliverance to those who submit to him. And get this, the means by which he makes that announcement is the church his people who follow him in victory look again at revelation 19 verse 14 kind of the centerpiece the oreo structure here and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses Who are the armies of heaven? Well, who did we just see earlier in the chapter was arrayed in fine linen? It's the bride of Christ, the church. Why are they on white horses? Because they're riding to victory. They're the ones who carry the message to the world. Now, two things need to be said about this. First of all, Jesus will be victorious over the whole earth. This is not up for debate. This is not up for discussion. We're not waiting on the edge of our seats to see how this is going to play out. We already know. The victory has been won. Like Isaiah wrote, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Or, as Isaac Watts wrote it in his great hymn, Jesus shall reign. Jesus shall reign 'er where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. And the second thing that needs to be said is this. The way that the kingdom spreads is not through triumphant military action. That's not what this image is telling us. Remember, the church is following her king, Jesus, who conquers with the sword of the word of God. Remember what Jesus said, my kingdom is not... Of this world. In other words, its source of power is different. This kingdom is powered by the Spirit of God. And the victory quite often comes in the same way that the victory of Jesus did through suffering. A couple of weeks ago, we learned the song, The Son of God Goes Forth to War. I'm going to sing that again soon. It begins with Jesus in the first verse and the victory that he wins. And then it moves to how Jesus' kingdom spreads over the whole earth. Verse 2 talks about Stephen, the first martyr. Verse 3 talks about the apostles. And then verse 4 talks about us, the church. That's how his kingdom spreads. Not by triumphalistic military might, but by the proclamation of the word of God the sharp, two-edged sword. And often that brings suffering. But it also brings the victory of the kingdom of Christ. It'll continue to do that until the earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Let's look at the second half of the passage, and I'll be much more brief with this. Verses 17 to 21. This is really the result of what we've already talked about, okay? In verses 6 through 10, we saw the marriage supper of the Lamb. That was the meal with Jesus and his bride, the church. Now we have another meal, another supper, and the angel announces the great supper of God, but this meal is very different. First, who is the angel calling and inviting? He invites all the birds that fly overhead, These are the birds of prey. The Bible often associates these unclean birds with demons. So in the last chapter, you might remember the announcement went out that Babylon was fallen. In other words, that Jerusalem had fallen, A.D. 70, because Babylon is Jerusalem. The angel said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. So the demons, the unclean spirits, are connected with the unclean birds, the birds of prey. And by the way, this is exactly what God warned his people about way back in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 28. God said that if they persisted in disobedience, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, A nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. What nation would obviously be symbolized by an eagle? Rome, of course. And Deuteronomy 28 also goes on to say, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food For all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. So this judgment that John is describing in the Great Supper in Revelation 19 is exactly what God said would happen. But now we see that it applies not just to Israel, but to all that align themselves with Israel against God. Second, what's on the menu at this supper? If you're going to be invited to a supper, sometimes you want to know what's on the menu, right? So what's on the menu at this supper? Well, the angel says that these birds will feast on the flesh of kings and captains and mighty men, of horses and riders, and of all men, free and slaves, small and great. So who are these people? These are the ones who have rejected Jesus. They're the ones who do not submit to the word of God, the announcement of the kingdom of Christ. They're the ones who don't come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all of these will face judgment and destruction. Maybe you've seen Alfred Hitchcock's movie, The Birds. Those scenes where the people get pecked to death and eaten by the birds. That's what you should be picturing here, only a lot worse. So this is a word of warning for you this morning. If you have not submitted to Christ, if you continue in rebellion against him, this is your future. Not to be eaten by birds, but to face the judgment of Christ, to be turned over to evil and inhumanity, to be separated from King Jesus forever. In the final verses of the chapter, we see that all who stand against Christ are finally judged. The beast and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. Now, we'll learn more about the lake of fire when we get to chapter 20. So we'll wait until then to talk more about it. But for now, just note, the fact that they're thrown in alive hints at the fact that their torment will go on. It'll continue. And in chapter 20, we'll see that it's eternal. But what's the main point that I want you to walk away with this morning from these verses? Here it is. The task of the church is to follow in the victorious footsteps of Christ often through suffering, but always through proclaiming his word. We've said that our mission as a church is discovering together what it means to follow Jesus. This is telling you what it means to follow Jesus. It means proclaiming his word. And often, going along with that, it means suffering for it. In our country, we're now facing a situation that's never happened before. Never before in our 400-year history has it been the case that to be a faithful Christian likely puts you in the persecuted minority, but that has now become the case. We've just turned that corner here in recent years, and it's not nearly as bad yet as it will be. It's going to get worse. If you're paying attention, you know that those who hold to biblical values are being characterized as a threat to society. Now, that's, it's not often naming Christians specifically, but some other groups, and groups overlap in values at times, groups that oppose the turn towards sexual deviancy and injustice and the acceptance of all of that. You're being set up for persecution, and you need to be ready for that. Will it ever get better? Well, if we're talking about our nation, the answer has to be, maybe we're not guaranteed that america will survive or thrive or return to its christian roots america is not god's chosen nation america may fade into obscurity or defeat or disappear on the other hand if there is repentance If the word of God is proclaimed faithfully by the church and people's hearts turn toward the Lord, then it's possible that we would once again experience the blessing of God. That's America. What about the church? Will it ever get better for the church? And the answer here is a resounding yes, because scripture tells us that one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The kingdom of Christ begins as a mustard seed. It grows into a great plant whose branches the birds can nest in. The kingdom of Christ is like a little bit of yeast in a lump of dough. Over time, the yeast spreads through the whole lump. The whole thing is raised up. The kingdom of Christ will do that in this world. It will spread. It will win. And so the church will see better days. Will that be in our lifetime? probably not we may very well still be in the days of the early church 20,000 years from now as people study church history they may characterize our times as part of the early church era but sooner or later as the son of god goes forth to war proclaiming the word of his victory the gospel of our salvation the kingdom will fill the earth so our role is to follow in the victorious footsteps of Christ, often through suffering, but always through proclaiming his word. So what do we do? How do we act in this world? Do we expect that our victory will be gained through political action, or do we abandon politics because Christ's kingdom is not of this world? Do we seek to influence the culture so that we develop a Christian culture in our nation, or do we avoid culture altogether because it's hopelessly pagan? There's a lot of discussion today, for example, about Christian nationalism. Should we seek to Christianize America, or should we keep Christianity separate from politics and culture? There are errors in either direction. On the one hand, Some Christians seek to focus all their efforts on things like political action and cultural efforts. And those can be excellent ways to invest our time and resources, as long as we don't think that that's how the kingdom of Christ spreads. The kingdom spreads by the word of God, through the power of the Spirit. And Christian politics and culture will be an outgrowth of changed hearts the growth of the gospel. On the other hand, some Christians focus entirely on the spiritual, not the earthly. It's as if they think the message of Christ won't ever have any actual impact on the world itself, only on people's hearts. It's a modern version of the Gnostic heresy that the early church confronted. The problem with this is changed hearts will necessarily work themselves out in the world. It'll result in changed politics, changed culture. And not only that, Christ claims lordship over it all. The kingdom of Christ is not limited to the spiritual realm. Everything belongs to him. He sets the rules for government and politics. He sets the rules for culture. And he calls all men everywhere to repent and submit to him entirely, not just in part of their life. So we need to remember that the kingdom will not come by politics or culture. The kingdom comes as God changes hearts, as men submit to Christ. There will never be lasting cultural change without repentance and faith in Christ. And we need to remember that Christ is Lord. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He sets the rules. He sets the standards. So if our hearts really are changed, we will necessarily see changed politics and culture so is it good to invest time and resources in things like politics and culture well yes of course because those things belong to god and political and cultural change is part of discipling the nations but it's not complete underneath those things we need heart change repentance and faith and holiness So is Christian nationalism a good thing? It depends on what you mean by the term. If you mean that achieving political or cultural victories that align with Christianity is the same as achieving the kingdom of Christ in our nation, then no, that's not right. Because the kingdom is not of this world. Its source and power is not in earthly things. But if by Christian nationalism you mean that as the hearts of men are changed, we should see real, tangible change in our nation, that our politics should change, that our laws would reflect God's laws, that abortion would come to an end, that all the LGBTQ deviance and nonsense becomes illegal, that we collectively honor God, not just with our words, but with our actions, then yes, it's a good thing. Because Jesus taught us to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven and in heaven everything is in perfect submission and alignment to christ so we should work to see that here on earth jesus told us to teach the nation's obedience to his commandments so that's a good thing and the only way that this will ever happen is by proclaiming the word of Christ in the power of the Spirit. So that's our job, to follow in the victorious footsteps of Christ, often through suffering, but always through proclaiming his word. It may mean that we suffer. That's no big surprise. Jesus suffered. We have no guarantee that following him will be pain-free and easy. But we're called to be faithful. So as the Son of God goes forth to war, we follow in his train. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for these words from Revelation 19. We thank you for this picture of the victorious Christ. It it reminds us that, that following you is not in vain you win. You are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that the victory has been won, and that as we go out in obedience, following you, we are to do what you do. We're to proclaim your word, proclaim your kingdom. Give us the strength and endurance and faith to do that in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Help us to understand what obedience, true obedience, looks like in every area of our life. That you would be Lord of lords, King of kings in every aspect of our lives. And that as we live faithful lives, as we faithfully proclaim the good news of Christ, that more people would come to know you. That society and culture would change because hearts have changed. Help us to be faithful. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.